And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, June 13th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, for the military, modernization goes way past information technology. Plus, GSA helps agencies choose just the right car, the right electric car, those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, now back from space, three NASA astronauts have a new mission to help recruit the next generation of federal employees. A group of federal interns from several agencies heard from the astronauts at a launch event for a new federal internship experience program. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman was there and files this report. Offering federal interns more professional development opportunities throughout the summer is the immediate goal of that new internship experience program. But more long-term, the Office of Personnel Management, in collaboration with the Department of Interior, is hoping to jumpstart more federal careers at the end of the summer. As part of the new experience program, OPM and Interior will host events for government-wide interns, including memo-writing workshops, training sessions, and mentoring sessions. To launch the new program, OPM and Interior brought in some help from maybe some of the coolest federal employees in the universe. The members of NASA's SpaceX Crew-5, Nicole Mann, Josh Cassida, and Koichi Wakata. They all recently returned from a mission to the International Space Station. The astronauts told the interns about their journey, everything from the projects they took on, like growing fresh tomatoes in space, to what they did in their free time, where one astronaut alone can sequentially pitch, hit, and then catch the same baseball. But most of all, the astronauts encouraged the federal interns to open themselves to new experiences and go after opportunities as much as they can. Nicole Mann is the first indigenous woman from NASA to go to space. She says there's never going to be a perfect time to become an astronaut or a federal employee, but don't count yourself out. When you make that decision, first step, one, apply, right? Because if you never do, if you count yourself out, if you're, you're nervous about failing or not getting that job, well, you're definitely not going to get it if step one, you don't fill out the application. And then step two, surround your people with people that love you and support you, whether that be family, friends, your community, your, your teachers. Um, you're not going to get there on your own. You're going to need those support people, and that's okay. Before landing a full-time career in government, many do start sooner with a federal internship. Josh Cassida, for one, was an intern for NASA, eventually working his way up to becoming an astronaut, Navy captain, physicist, and test pilot. Because I was an intern at NASA in 1994, I was uh, down at the Marshall Space Flight Center for a summer when I did uh, my research in physics. We were funded by the NSF, and that was working uh, through the Department of Energy. And then after that, I went to the Department of Defense. So I've been in a lot of different departments. My one piece of advice is just be curious. You know, if you think you know what you want to do, go ahead and, and look into it. But also look into other things, too. I mean, you're really young. I'm super envious, honestly. I'm sitting up here, and I'm telling you I'm envious. Uh, because you've got your entire life ahead of you. I have no idea what I want to do when I grow up. Um, and I, I mean that. Uh, and so I would say stay really curious and, and go find that thing that you're really passionate about and then do that and then maybe some other things too. Currently, only 7% of the federal workforce is under age 30. OPM and Interior's new internship experience program is just one piece of a much larger puzzle trying to improve recruitment of younger federal employees. The effort comes after years of underperformance in the government's internship program. 
In an effort to revive the program, the Biden administration plans to hire 35,000 federal interns and has encouraged agencies to offer more paid opportunities. In January, the administration gave agencies guidance on best practices to better hire, incentivize, and retain early career federal employees, and that includes interns, fellows, and apprentices. Early career hiring is also a focus included in the first priority of the president's management agenda. OPM Deputy Director Rob Shriver has taken the lead on many of the early career recruitment efforts. Shriver spoke to the interns at the experience program launch event. Honestly, like you would not believe how much we talk about you. Like at all levels of government, the senior most levels that I'm involved in, we talk about interns all the time. Um, So how is it that we're putting you first? Well, first, uh, we at OPM, we are your champions uh, with agencies all across the government. And we're advocating every day about why they should hire more interns. Uh, Because, you know, just because we think that agencies should hire interns, that doesn't mean that it automatically happens. So we try to help them understand why it's really important to have that pipeline of talent that starts with interns. We really want your experience to be fantastic. We have a new intern experience effort that we're leading from OPM, and today's event is part of that. We want you to come back, uh, whether it's for another summer or a job right after you finish your education or after you've spent a few years working in another sector, or even once you're an expert in your field, there's lots of opportunities. We want you to have a good experience, and we want you to want to come back. And so we are working to streamline those different pathways to make it easier to pursue a federal job, no matter the stage of your career. There are so many diverse job opportunities in the federal government, like literally just about every kind of job you can imagine. The new internship experience program is far from the first step to revamp the internship program and to jumpstart early career hiring. Early career recruitment has remained a strong focus for OPM over the last several years. OPM, for instance, has recently finalized regulations on hiring authorities for college graduates and post-secondary students. Those aim to make it easier for agencies to hire employees at the start of their careers. The agency is also taking steps to broaden the Pathways Program and President Management Fellows Program to open the doors to more applicants. Right now, the Pathways Program is mainly focused on recruiting four-year college students, but they're looking to expand that to include trade schools and community colleges, too. The common thread? Shriver says it's about communicating with agencies and interns about their firsthand experience in the internship program. We hear from this network um, about what's going on in the space, and then we, through that network, we're able to engage directly with interns, BMFs, recent grads. So that has certainly um, informed um, this program. We also um, work regularly with the agencies, through the Chief Human Capital Officer Council, through all kinds of different levels. And so when we, and OMB has also been a great partner in this, and we're going to the agencies and saying, we need to do a better job with early career talent and interns, they are saying to us, okay, but this is what we need from you. So that's what has informed all of this. And of course, not every federal intern will become one of NASA's astronauts, but Nicole Mann left interns at the event with a bigger takeaway. You know, as a child, I didn't realize that I could be an astronaut. And so communicating that journey, I think, to the younger generation, uh, hopefully they can identify with a physicist from Minnesota, you know, or a, or a Japanese astronaut that w- had these aspirations when Japan didn't even have a space program. Um, so sharing that journey with people will hopefully inspire the young generation. It's an important part of our job. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, GSA has a new tool to help agencies choose just the right car, the right electric car for their fleet. 
This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It's not so easy picking out cars and light trucks for your federal fleet. No more garages full of Chevy Luminas. Now the General Services Administration, which oversees these things, has issued an online tool to help fleet managers pick out electric vehicles. We get more now from GSA's Executive Director for Fleet Management, Christina Kingsland. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And the Assistant Commissioner for Travel, Transportation, and Logistics, Crystal Philcox. Crystal, good to have you back. Great to be here. In looking over the field of electrical cars... I mean, there's not just one thing. There's all electric, there's hybrid electric, there's plug-in electric, there's this, that, and the other. Hydrogen, if you're in certain parts of the country, little Hindenburgs. So what does this tool do? And I mean, what is, how do you begin to pick out the next round of cars to replace those those uh, gas guzzlers? Yeah, uh, great question. So first, let me just say that we are really excited about this effort. You know, GSA Fleet has been working with our telematics provider, Geotab, to deploy telematics and to collect necessary fleet data and, um, you know, find ways to use that data to help agencies transition to zero emission vehicles. And so we are really proud to now finally introduce the electric vehicle suitability assessment tool, um, EVSA for short, and uh, it's a long name, but we, uh, we promise that the user interface is very simple. So what this tool does is it uses fleet telematics data to make uh, sort of informed vehicle replacement recommendations uh, regarding fleet electrification. And so it'll use real world performance information from vehicles that are out operating in our fleet today. And then it suggests the type of EVs to acquire based on that data. So it really makes planning for uh, transitioning to EVs as seamless as possible. It helps users kind of optimize for EV acquisition and deployment strategies and, you know, using these predictive analytics. So GSA is really leading sort of this federal wide transition to zero emission footprint in our vehicles. And we're, we really believe that this tool is just one more option sure. in the federal fleet manager's toolkit. It helps them achieve that goal. Well, Christina, so. let me ask you this. If you, if the telematics should show that there's a couple of drivers and every day they leave an office and they have to drive 250 miles into the desert to do something, maybe check water tables for the cactuses and then go back to the office, then there's no charging station out there and it's a 500 mile round trip, chances are it would say, well, maybe you need a hybrid. Whereas if you are doing point to point driving all around the Bay Area where there's a charging station, there's more of those than Wawa's, then you can <laughs> maybe get by with a fully electric. Is that the type of thing that it helps you do? That's exactly right, Tom. So it looks at the actual operating data on the vehicle. So how many trips per day, how many miles per trip, you know, the fueling experience on an electric vehicle is very different than that of a gasoline vehicle. And given the time that it takes to charge, it's often just, you know, better to do it where the vehicle is garaged. And so this tool is doing exactly what you said, looking at those, the operational information of, you know, how many miles are you going at any given time, and then allows the user to set essentially an acceptable range of how many times you want to publicly charge for that, you know, vehicle. And then, you know, looks at a whole year of data. Hey, it, we predict that you'll have to publicly charge maybe twice. And that's going to be completely acceptable. It's helping folks get those low-hanging fruit 
and, you know, select electric vehicles where it makes the most sense for the mission requirements. It also helps them compare the cost and the fuel savings and CO emission savings as well. And no charging stations within 100 feet of a tavern, because then you'd have to get in the car afterwards, I suppose. But (laughs) where do the telematics come from? Is this logs kept by drivers, or do the cars in the fleet now pretty much broadcast what they're doing? Yeah, so actually, it's the telematics are included in GSA leased vehicles in particular. So when we get a new vehicle, we have a telematics device automatically put into that vehicle when it's delivered to us. And so we get the basic information here at GSA Fleet, and then our customers have the option also of doing a what we call it the Pro Plus plan, where they get access to additional information. And for the use of the EVSA tool, it's really important to have GPS data, right, to understand where a vehicle is going to better understand, you know, the electric vehicle suitability. And so they would need to do that additional service in order to capture the full telematics data through either our OEM provided telematics devices, but it all goes through our telematics partner, Geotab. And so we are collecting that information and you need to collect a few months of data, you know, for it to be useful, but it's all there and it's all coming together um, in the only FedRAMP um, authorized telematics um, database today. Right. And Geotab also does this commercially? They sure do, of course. Yep. And uh, we worked with them to develop a a federal instance for it and kind of make it fit with our business model as well so that they know exactly what vehicles are available on our schedule. And um, they have included the monthly and mileage lease rates for points of comparison. We're speaking with Christina Kingsland. She's executive director for GSA Fleet Management and Crystal Philcox, assistant commissioner for travel, transportation, and logistics at GSA. So this tool then is tuned down to the vehicle. That is to say, if you have multiple uses and use cases, and I imagine every agency does, that doesn't say, well, you need all this kind of car or all that kind of car, but it's fine-grained per user, you might say. It's actually um, fine-tuned to sort of the class of vehicle that, that folks are driving. We have a number of groupings of types of vehicles that we have out there, um, everything from, you know, small compact sedans to large trucks, like very large trucks. So it's looking at, this tool is really looking at the, the range data. Um, it's, uh, it, it also looks at operating cost uh, of that current vehicle. And uh, it estimates the fuel consumption, the carbon emissions of that existing vehicle. So there's a lot of data there to help you, uh, you know, figure out and decide. And does Um, it recommend brands or how does it map across, you know, the need to buy American for the fleet? Because not all of them are. And like Volvos, for example, that's owned by the Chinese now, even though they have some great hybrids and stuff. So how does that all work such that you get an actual choice of something you can go take a bid on? Yeah, that that comes back to the instance that they specialized for the federal fleet. So they actually use the models that we have awarded that are available to federal fleet customers. And it's very model specific information. Crystal mentioned the range. It comes down to the model and pairing that with the existing vehicle and the use of that existing vehicle. It's pretty cool. I just wanted to get to brands and names, but does it filter out the ones you can't buy as a federal agency? It does. It only pairs with the ones that are available to them to purchase on our on our existing contracts. Yep. And just refresh my memory, does GSA buy them on behalf of agencies or does GSA just keep tabs and the agencies 
buy them on their own. So for the federal leased fleet, we buy and own them on behalf of agencies. And then we lease those vehicles that we own back out to our federal customers. And then on the agency owned side of the house, we set up all the contracts and the contracts are directly with GSA. So technically we buy the vehicle from the supplier and then resell it immediately to um, the federal customer. And what are you hearing from federal customers with respect to the fact that a lot of these cars are expensive relative to the plain old gas counterparts? Yeah, there is a sticker price difference, right, for on electric vehicles. It's it's a bit higher than um, the regular gas vehicles at this time. So uh, the EVSA tool, you know, it takes it takes that price difference into account. And it also kind of lets agencies see the lifetime cost savings of transitioning to zero emission vehicles. We're using that real data on actual awarded costs for for makes and models that, that the GSA fleet has available. And then we give agencies this comprehensive evaluation of the cost of operating that electric vehicle. And just a question on that point you made, zero emission. What about hybrids, which are not zero emission because there's an engine in it? You may never use it that much. And the plug-in hybrids, you may never get to the engine even though there's gas in the tank, I guess, there. Do those count? So the PHEVs do. The plug-in hybrid electric vehicles do count, but the standard hybrid does not. So if you have the option for that zero emission operation, which the PHEV does provide, um, that does count within the executive order today. The standard hybrid, not so much. The tool does give you that option, too, just like you mentioned, Tom, in the beginning about hey, maybe a full battery electric doesn't work for you, but a PHEV absolutely would. So this tool then is not just for GSA use, but you expect it to be used by the fleet managers throughout the government. All of our federal agencies are uh, have this tool available now to them. Anyone who leases vehicles from GSA fleet, that's about 227,000 government vehicles out there. And if agencies are enrolled in our telematics program, particularly this Pro Plus subscription that Christy mentioned, they then have access to this tool now. And we're offering federal agencies really two ways to use this tool. So it's either self-service or full service. And right now, as we're initially rolling out this new capability, uh, GSA Fleet and Geotab are offering a full service model where we run this EVSA analysis on behalf of the customer agency. So we'll analyze the results. We'll present the findings back to the agency as a consultation and um, and, uh, and we're currently offering that at no additional cost. So, um, and then after agencies get familiar with the tool and how to interpret those results, um, then our, our Pro Plus customers will be able to use that system themselves, use their own dedicated database, and uh, we'll have support, um, you know, available to them to help agencies set up uh, and and follow those instructions. Any indications of take up of this yet, or is it too early? Christina? We do have several expressions of interest already. We have, I believe, three agencies that are already getting started on it and doing taking a whole agency-wide approach as well. All right. Christina Kingsland is Executive Director for GSA Fleet Management. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. And Crystal Philcox is Assistant Commissioner for Travel, Transportation, and Logistics at GSA. Always great to have you on. Great to be here with you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, along with a link to that tool. Drive the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, industry pushes hard for the government to modernize foreign military sales. But first, for the military, modernization goes way past information technology. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Most discussions about federal modernizing center on information technology. For the armed forces, though, modernizing is also about physical systems that require a solid manufacturing industry base. That's where the nonprofit Advanced Manufacturing Innovation and Integration Center comes in. It's working to support the Army's need for a half million skilled workers. Here with the details, the center's program manager, Brian Schmidt. Mr. Schmidt, good to have you with us. Great to be here. Tell us about the center itself. What does it actually do? It's a nonprofit. Most people know is you're in Huntsville, which is a big center for a lot of military and manufacturing activity. But what goes on at the center? So you're absolutely correct. There's a lot of activity going on here. The center is actually a division of the National Center for Defense Manufacturing and Machining. We've been working in the Huntsville area with Huntsville businesses and the arsenal and those types of folks since about 2005. So we have had a presence here. Just made a lot of sense to uh, finally stand up a division here in Huntsville. What the AMIC division does is we provide exposure and training related to advanced manufacturing technologies and providing that exposure to northern Alabama, whether it be academia, whether it be government friends, those types of things. So that in a nutshell is what we do. Uh, We have several thousand square foot of lab space that has numerically controlled machines, provides exposure to robotic manipulation of parts, blue light scanning, all of the up-to-date technology with respect to manufacturing. And give us a sense of the precision with which defense systems, and I think this is true all the way down to the individual cartridge or shell, all the way up to a Patriot missile type of system, these are not things that are just kind of banged out of pig iron, are they? No, no, definitely not. I mean, we'll be dealing with precision in inspection and precision in creation of parts into thousands and even tenths. Everything is just getting more precise. Machines are being able to create more precise geometries, which requires inspection to validate and verify those geometries. So we are providing exposure to be able to understand how to manipulate and use that type of equipment. Plus, you need welders and riveting, and there's a lot of attachment technologies that are equally high-tech nowadays. A bad weld, you're out of luck if the weld breaks. Exactly. So we provide linkage to other academia within the northern Huntsville area that provide that expertise, whether it be welding expertise, whether it be inspection expertise. So we are here to provide training and exposure to kind of set the stage for future adoption by the individual. They may choose that this is something that they want to go and pursue more based upon this exposure. And then we can provide the linkage to that local academia, local businesses, those types of things. Now, Huntsville, I think, has become the most populous city in Alabama. But Alabama is not the most populous place to begin with. And so why just northern Alabama? I mean, there's a giant country that needs these jobs. And, of course, the military industrial base is nationwide. Yes, you're exactly correct. So we have a lot of technologically proficient folks here. NASA is here, you know, name of multiple name or digit acronym, you know, insert that here and there here. With all of those smart folks, there tends to be a kind of a less of a focus on the manufacturability. So the sooner that we can get those super smart folks to understand manufacturability and design for manufacturing and those types of things, 
the easier it is to transition a good idea into a manufactured product. We are speaking with Brian Schmidt. He's a program manager at the Advanced Manufacturing Innovation and Integration Center in Huntsville, Alabama. And you have become a mentor in the Army's Mentor-Protégé program. Tell us more about that. So Mentor-Protégé, it was an absolute perfect fit for NCDMM and AMIC. So our strength is providing advanced manufacturing technology and advanced manufacturing solutions to assist the Department of Defense in combating manufacturing issues or creation of new manufactured systems. So by capitalizing on our past experience with transition of technology from essentially a lab prototype to pre-production, we were set up well to apply for that mentor-protege and allows us to engage with small to medium-sized companies within Northern Alabama to help them navigate that, hey, We had this team of super smart folks. We've developed this lab prototype. Okay, now how do we get it into the DOD's hands or into the hands of of somebody to manufacture? So transitioning, it's called the valley of death. It's a manufacturing readiness level from four to seven. So it's transitioning through that uh, technology development or that product development phase. Right. So you really have two things you need to mentor outfits on small companies. One is the manufacturing itself and the technologies and techniques and the workforce requirements to do that. But then how do you sell it and how do you get the government to buy it? Because often there's that desire to sell. There ought to be. And then the government is always expressing a need for these new products or these new capabilities. But as you point out, there's that valley of death, which is the acquisition system. So we, you know, another strength that NCDMM and AMIC have are being able to make the connections between those small and medium-sized manufacturers or even development teams to manufacturers within this region and within the United States that can help them also transition that product or that technology from a good idea to a manufactured product. So are you now mentoring some companies? Have they actually signed on? We have. We have a few in the pipeline. I don't want to jinx anything or let the cat out of the bag. Uh, we are currently engaged with some folks. We've been partnering with uh, other individuals to get exposure to other companies within the northern Alabama region. So just getting out there, networking, providing an understanding of where we can help folks has really, really bode well for us. And if you're working with small Alabama companies, what is their access to capital? Because you're talking capital-intensive types of work, machine tools, robotic automation, and all of these things. The uh, test and measurement requirements of high-tech manufacturing are pretty rigorous. So it's expensive to do versus starting another consulting company. Yes. So there are methods in, in which we can assist with providing that technology providing that understanding and providing that funding. Every case is slightly different than the next. So to say generally that we can provide all funding to all people to do all things is is, is not a correct statement. That's, that's kind of where that stands. Because you got to make sure they can pay you back eventually or there won't be money for the next guy. <laughs> well, we are a nonprofit, so uh, we don't hold IP. So that's not how we get paid. Uh, we are doing this as part of a, you know, federal or Alabama funded or 
Uh, we have a bunch of different funding mechanisms to provide that experience and that development. And is your own background military such that you have an interest in making sure the military is ultimately well-equipped, which is the point of all of this? Exactly correct. Exactly correct. We do not want our folks to go into a fair fight. We want them to have an, a distinct advantage in any scenario that they can be engaging in. Brian Schmidt is a program manager at the Advanced Manufacturing Innovation and Integration Center in Huntsville. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Just a shameless plug, you know, for Northern Alabama. Uh, it's great to finally have a facility here and uh, looking forward to engaging with all the folks here in the region. Plus some good hunting, fishing, and motorcycling down there too, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, transitioning from Pennsylvania to Alabama, I don't have to shovel heat. So that's fantastic. <laughs> we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, industry pushes hard for the government to modernize foreign military sales. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Three contractor trade associations have banded together on the issue of foreign military sales. Last year, they sent a long list of suggested changes to the Defense Department. This year, they're focusing on the State Department. And here with a summary, the Professional Services Council's Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, I guess let's start with what is the problem with the foreign military sales system and just briefly, what does DOD have to do with it, and how does State Department support that effort? It's one of those areas where the problem is defined by wherever you tend to sit, right? So if you ask our foreign partners, our countries and allies partners, they will tell you one set of issues. I'm going to give you the defense industry perspective, which is to say the foreign military sales process is taking far too long to actually go from requirement to agreement to actual sales and fielding of equipment and services. And so last fall in November of 2022, the Defense Department came to the three associations, Professional Services Council being one of them, um, that act in the defense space and said, listen, we're having an FMS tire team process to identify areas where DOD, the Department of Defense, can make improvements for foreign military sales. Please send us your ideas. And so we banded together, as you said, and we provided a response last fall we shared then that response with the oversight committees on Capitol Hill, and this also generated some interest from the State Department and the Commerce Department, both of which play active roles in foreign sales of military equipment. And so this is volume two that we sent over on June 8th. This was quite extensive. There are more than 30 individual recommendations that we have beyond the Department of Defense. It's things like you know, there is an office at the State Department which handles defense trade controls, export licensing, and whatnot. We're suggesting that they have a senior career civil servant in there for continuity and to fill that vacant billet as soon as possible. It's things that are that practical all the way over to can we not streamline the export control process that, you know, several administrations right. have taken a crack at, but we have some suggestions there. Just the fact that there's the Commerce Department and the State Department and the Defense Department gives you an idea of how bureaucratic this has become. So the issue then, when you say the time it takes, if country X would like to buy some technology that is in fact legally exportable to that country, it takes a long time before they can actually get delivery of the howitzers or the tank or whatever the case might be. 
That's exactly right. We're not talking months. We're talking years. You mentioned the many cooks that are in this kitchen, and they're all there for a very good reason. The additional cook that's in the kitchen is Congress, and there are congressional notification requirements that can take months again in order to get clearance to send this material and services over to our closest friends and allies. So Congress has to say so then over it. They do. Depending on the dollar figure, there are different thresholds for NATO allies versus other countries, for example, and that will trigger congressional notification. And that will take, on paper, 30 days, but there is a lengthy pre-notification process. So our volume that we submitted over to the State Department last week talks about that and talks about ways in which we can shorten timelines. One of the impetuses for talking about this is, as you know, the Australia-UK-US AUKUS deal. I would say, you know, if we're going to have streamlined or accelerated relationships, foreign military sales with certain countries, you know, can we not learn the lessons and figure out how to accelerate it for many of our allies and partners? And a theme running through all of the recommendations, and it's a 10-page document, so it's something someone can get through that you have sent to the State Department. And by the way, we should mention the other organizations involved, the Aerospace Industries Association and the National Defense Industrial Association are your kind of partners here in non-crime, let's say. But (laughs) a recurring theme is that there is a strained workforce in DOD and in the State Department that handle these things, that they are overloaded, and that's part of the delay? That is part of the delay. And, you know, workforce issues are not limited to the defense industry. It's also within the government itself. If you look at some of the contracting officer billets, you have vacancy rates that range from 5% vacancy to 40% vacancy throughout the government. In this area in particular, you're looking at a workforce that is very, very understaffed and under-resourced, and we do make recommendations regarding bulking that up and also giving them training in what they're looking at and some of the uh, relationships that we have with our allies and partners. And so workforce is going to be something that you, you hear PSC, NDIA, and AIA, all of our three associations talk about at length. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And another suggestion allied to that is outsource some of these things that are non-inherently governmental decisions. And a lot of this is routine stuff that is just process that could be outsourced to contractors to speed up. There's a little bit of outsourcing, but also perhaps automation. You know, for example, you've approved widget A for country X that is in a certain alliance, say, Could you not parallel that process to make it easier for country Y to get that same widget A? So it's one of those things where we see a lot of opportunity, not just outsourcing, but automation, as well as streamlining accelerated processing that can help in this regard. Again, it shouldn't take at least two years, potentially more, for a close NATO ally to access some of the material and services that we should be sharing with them. And there's a lot of arcane inside baseball, if you will, suggestions which will resonate, I guess, with people involved in foreign military sales. For example, strengthen authorities for dual-use items initially sold via the foreign military sales process so that if there's another use for a howitzer, I keep using that. Probably not the howitzer. Not the howitzer. Well, you might go hunting with one, I don't know, for big game. But the idea is that something could be dual-used without a lot of rigmarole once they have possession of it. 
I think that is one of the areas that we're exploring. You know, it's, again, going to the State Department and talking to different oversight committees. I mentioned earlier that we were talking to the Department of Defense and their oversight committees last year. You know, this is a different set of oversight committees when you're working with the State Department and the Commerce Department. And so talking with them about the Arms Export Control Act, talking to them about the Foreign Assistance Act, talking to them about, you know, international trafficking and arms regulations, etc., and talking, you know, it's never easy to amend legislation as it shouldn't be. It needs to be a thoughtful, deliberate process. But we think we can get there on some of this dual use issue. Right. And that brings me to another question. A lot of these suggestions that you've aimed to the departments involved, is there something Congress can do legally or is there some statutory reform that could help? You know, we do talk a little bit in the recommendations about looking at the AECA, I just mentioned the Arms Export Control Act, as well as some of the other legislative authorities. Again, congressional notification requirements are in statute or in regulation, depending on what you're talking about. And so I think there is room for Congress to move on this. And what? I hope that there's appetite, because I think everyone recognizes, well, let's use Ukraine as a case study, right? We want it to be able to flow equipment and services to support the Ukrainian government after the Russian invasion of 2022, but we need it to move fast. And I think there are lessons to learn from that experience. Right. In the case of Ukraine, there was almost no bureaucratic process. They need this. They need that. Congress appropriated it. I mean, it takes a long time to ship some of the stuff, but they drew down U.S. stockpiles and this kind of thing. That was a case history of how fast it can happen. And that's assuming, of course, that there is a validated requirement and you actually have the material and services on hand. I think where we're going to run into some issues is that some of these long lead items that have to be manufactured or you have to train the workforce to be able to provide the services required, that's going to take a long time. But it shouldn't be because of a bureaucratic process. It should be because of the natural production process. Right. And I guess a good cause would be, say, Russia is attacking us. (laughs) That might stimulate a little bit of alacrity there, too. The wartime fitting is always, you know, the outlier. But if we could get regular order to be a little bit faster for foreign military sales, we would all appreciate it. Okay. And so, again, these are pretty detailed recommendations, create proviso rectification processes. And there's a lot of language like that in there. But basically, you got the request from the State Department that said, since you're suggesting changes to DOD, we can help here also. So I guess what I'm asking is, there's a sense that the State Department also understands this is overly lengthy and bureaucratic. I think there is common understanding across the board, on the Hill, in the executive branch, and in industry, and certainly with our foreign partners. I would say when AIA, NDIA, and PSC went out to our member companies and said, give us what you got, what are some recommendations, what are some pain points that you're experiencing, we did get a lot of feedback. We provided the DOD-specific feedback last fall, so then we were sitting on this treasure trove of recommendations for state and commerce, et cetera. And so when the State Department heard that, they were very, very open to hearing what our member companies had to say. And that's a great sign. It's a great sign for industry collaboration with the government to make things a little bit easier. And by the way, is there a sense on the part of these associations that demand is on the rise from foreign countries for U.S. military stuff? That is generally the sense. You know, we talked about Ukraine earlier. We were not the only ones who drew down from our existing stocks. Friends, allies, partners also drew down to support the Ukrainian government and military. In addition, We've heard Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Milley talk about the pacing threat of China. We've heard the whole Department of Defense uh, infrastructure talk about the the pacing threat of China, and no one feels that more poignantly than the folks in the Indo-Pacific area. So I think we are seeing increased interest. The tempering effect, though, of it's such a bureaucratic process does make our friends think twice about if we need something immediately or in the short term, 
can we rely on the U.S. system to provide that? And we want the answer to be yes. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the State Department recommendations at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. At the Interior Department, back office systems running grants, real property, finance, and acquisition are getting more than just a burst of new technology. The office overseeing all that new IT is getting a new name. The Business Integration Office will soon become the Business Integration and Innovation Office. They call it BI Squared. Andrea Brandon, Interior's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Budget, Finance, Grants, and Acquisition, tells Executive Editor Jason Miller about why both the name change and the new technology will accelerate Interior's digital transformation. That's what my bio office, or soon to be the BI Squared office, has been really putting RPA First and foremost, working through all of the lines of business that uh, fall under my purview and across DOI because we work with the different bureaus. And we have six bots already that are active, that are up and running, and two that are in development. And I think our most famous bot is Bob, the closer. So we name all of our bots. And Bob, the closer, actually closes out acquisition contracts. And so that one's getting the most bang for the butt. So we're really moving forward with all of our innovations, starting with RPA. You're going to have to have Bob meet Dora. Have you heard of Dora? <laughs> I have Dora is the Dora. acquisition closeout that the Army developed. Oh, so Bob and Dora could get married and that have little, little baby bots. Right? Little baby bots. I love it. Let me ask a little bit about some of those bots. You mentioned Bob with acquisition closeout. What are some of the other ones, other areas that, that they are so touching upon? So we have one called the Ozdebot, and that one is uh, grabbing all of our, our Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization data from across all of our bureaus and across the department, our acquisitions, offices, and so forth, because we have goaling uh, metrics that we have to keep up with that are given to us from the Small Business Administration. Each federal agency has them. And so we keep up every day with our, you know, with the statuses of our small business contracts, um, the different areas, like whether it's women-owned business or veteran-owned business or et cetera. And so that, that bot pulls that information automatically for us, and it also does the dashboards and so forth, and, and it keeps us up to speed on a daily basis. So it's, it's working out really well. No more manual processes with that. And the, the goal there is so you as the Deputy Assistant Secretary or your boss's 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 boss can say, how are we doing with our small business exactly. goals? And you can pull it up and say, well, as of today at 3.30, exactly. boom, this is how we're doing. Yes. And, and that also helps you drive decisions and helps you make other things. Are you far enough along to that it's already having that impact? Yes. Or? yes, we are. So one of the things we know because of the bot is unfortunately, how many small businesses we've lost over the last few years. And so, you know, we have that data handy. We have the dashboards because the bot is pulling that information. And so now we're starting an initiative to try to bring back the small businesses and try to get that that cadre of businesses, of small businesses back into DOI. So, yes, it's very helpful with decision-making um, and also with letting us know how, you know, the goaling metrics, it looks like each day, you know, we're like, oh, we're succeeding. But the more contracts we let over the as the year goes on, if you don't make enough small business, then those numbers change right. if you don't do enough of that. So that is giving us the information. The bot is giving us that information. We also have another bot called the Appy Bot that's actually doing the, the administrative changes to acquisitions automatically. So basically, if we need to change any terms and conditions on a contract or if we need to change any of the administrative requirements or anything on a, on a, a contract vehicle, the bot actually does the work for us and then it 
actually passes a draft of it over to the contracting official, and they make the final decision. So there's that whole call of what can be done by a bot versus where we still need human intervention. I like to call that the inherently human versus non-inherently human decisions that we need to make. But, yeah, so we have a bot doing that. So we have, like I said, the bot brigade is building up, and they'll be marching on through DOI. We're loving it. Now, the back office areas, finance, grants, acquisition, they're all made for this type of technology. A lot of, quote unquote, low value work, and then you can move people to out of that low value work. How are you measuring the impact? Are you measuring by cost savings, by hours taken to, to do a certain yes. issue, to complete a certain task? How are you measuring kind of the impact? Like, let's take Bob the Closer, for instance. It's, we've already closed 7,441 contracts. So before we were having an issue because the contract closeout process had to be done by the same group of individuals that had to award the contracts. And all of the awards have to be made before September 30th. So we, of course, our priority is getting the money out the door. Unfortunately, closing it back out and, you know, maybe de-obligating the money and getting the undelivered order off of the books took a secondary, took a back seat to getting the money out the door. So now we have the bot that's closing it out. And so we know exactly how many contracts have been closed out, and it takes 104 seconds per contract to close it out. So we've been tracking all of these different metrics. And on the other bots, we're looking at cost savings. And we know in some of them, we won't see a cost savings for a couple of years because, you know, it takes time. We have to pay money to get the bot and to build the bot. And so we're looking on the return on investment for that. But, yeah, we have all the various metrics and I can honestly say people are excited about this and they don't feel like they are being replaced by the bot. They're very excited. They're coming up with more use cases. And our, uh, like I said, our bot brigade is, is growing, <laughs> leaps and bounds. I think what people like is not to have to shuffle the paper and do the boring, <laughs> mundane, repetitive type yeah. of things. Is, is that also the feedback you're getting? Definitely. It's like, if I never have to close out another contract, that won't be soon enough. Exactly. You're getting that kind of feedback. Yes. And on the financial assistance side, grant side, they are asking us, how soon can you get it on, the, on that side? You know, so you're like, you got it for contracts, but when can you get it for the grants? So we're working on that now, actually. I was going to ask that question because you mentioned two in the works. What's your list like in terms of 10 others, 15 others, 100 others that people want. Hey, we could use a bot for this and this and this. Do you have a long list? And how, so, do you, how do you prioritize that list? Yeah, so we actually have two that are in development currently, but we have a very long list. And so what we ended up having to do is we had to put together a DOI council on RPA because we have them not only for the businesses that are under my purview, but we have them across other parts of for HR, for instance. That's not under my purview, but the HR people want RPA as well. And then we have, I think you called, you uh, asked me about the Interior Business Center. They have bots as well. And so we need to prioritize, first of all, how much uh, funding can go to where, so which bots are going to be prioritized in the department. And then the other thing is shared learned experiences across the department and maybe even shared vehicles. You know, why make 100 different contracts across the entire interior when we can shorten that and use the same contract vehicle or several contract vehicles? And like I said, look at lessons learned across, you know, the department. If we've already implemented six bots, what did that take to get them up and running what types of challenges did we run across? How do we fix those challenges, et cetera? So we have a council now that we um, have put together. We've met one time, and so we will continue 
to build that out and to look at our, our RPA roadmap across the department, if you will. Andrea Brandon, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Budget, Finance, Grants, and Acquisition for the Interior Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 